With great joy and firm resolve, we affirm as a church the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. During this Christmas season, we have proclaimed this fundamental doctrine of our faith in a number of ways, haven't we? A few weeks ago, a number of us entered three public housing facilities and sang of the virgin birth of the incarnate Son of God. In song throughout this month and in the sermon last Lord's Day, we have affirmed our belief in this vital doctrine. And in cards and letters and gifts, a number of you bore personal witness to your belief in this key tenet to unbelieving relatives and friends and acquaintances and also to encourage the believers in this great doctrine of truth. The doctrine of Christ's virgin birth is an essential doctrine. We must uphold it at all cost in our defense of the faith. Having said that, we should also recognize that in the biblical text, Jesus never even hinted at the fact of his virgin birth. It is not to say that he never discussed it because we don't know all that Jesus said. But in the biblical text, he never gave any indication of his virgin birth. It was not how Jesus got here that was of utmost consideration and is of utmost consideration in the text of Scripture, as important as that is. It is rather what Jesus did while he was here that is emphasized. His virgin birth is a glorious truth. But it was His miracle-working power, His ethical purity, and His worldwide, His worldview expressed in His radical teaching, which demonstrated His divinity. As we return to the sixth chapter of Luke this morning, there are a growing number of people who are getting the picture, and a growing number of people who are rejecting the implications of what they are seeing in the ministry of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus They're not merely refusing to take someone else's word that Jesus was virgin born. There's much more to it than that. With growing resolve, they are refusing the plain demonstrations of his authority displayed before their very eyes. So the Galilean ministry of Jesus continues to intensify more followers, more enemies. Jesus knows his days on earth are numbered. He will soon lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. And so what does he do? He begins to take decided steps to prepare his disciples for leadership in his absence. Beginning at 6, 12. He spends an entire night in prayer, then selects 12 men to be his closest disciples, the apostles of the emerging church. Verses 12 through 16. Having done this, having chosen these 12, Jesus ministers to his followers and then preaches a message to them revealing what it will mean to be his follower. First, miraculous demonstration of who he is. Then, a sermon in which he spells out what he believes and what it means to be his disciple. A demonstration of power we find in verses 17 through 19. This is something of a summary section, but we would understand it also to be chronological here in this section. We read in verse 17 that he went down with him and stood on a level place. He went down, that is, from the mountainside, verse 12, where he was praying and then chose the 12. He goes down from that height 
to a level place. If the same sermon is recorded in Matthew 5-7, through 7, this would be a plateau on the mountain. If it is a different sermon, which I would tend to think, then it is perhaps a field or on the seashore. Whatever the case, he comes down to this level place. Verse 17, a large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over all from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, there are many disciples that are taking uh, long journeys over numerous days to come and to hear Jesus. And why are they here? Verse 18, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So a twofold purpose for this journey from Judea to the south, from the coast to the west. These people are gathering together to be healed by Jesus and to hear what Jesus has to say, to listen to his preaching. And on both accounts, on both counts, Jesus does not disappoint. Verse 18, the second part of the verse, those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So those who have come to be delivered from satanic oppression, those who have come to be delivered from illness and disease, are delivered as power flows through Jesus to cure them. Jesus' ultimate conflict was not, of course, with the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. His ultimate conflict was with Satan and his kingdom. Power flows from Jesus in conquest of Satan's chaotic and destructive efforts. Jesus' powers also flowed against the consequences of a fallen world as he set prisoners free, free of blindness and free of deafness and leprosy and paralysis and many of the maladies that people faced in those times. With his healing and exorcistic powers, Jesus served notice that the king of the universe had arrived. On this glorious day, after an entire night in prayer, Jesus won victory after victory over Satan and death, and the people of God rejoiced. But you cannot simply line up to be healed. That's not the program. You must hear what Jesus has to say. Demonstrating his power, he then preaches and teaches the truth. He did not come simply to wow the crowds with his power. He came to call them to himself, to holiness, and to righteousness. People who would not only acknowledge his power, but who would hear what he had to say were the people for whom Jesus was fishing, seeking, and finding. So we enter on to a sermon which could only be described as spiritually revolutionary. Beginning at verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed, 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 blessed. Four blessings that come upon his people. It seems clear to me that the content of the sermon was preached routinely by Jesus in various venues. The sermon starts with what are referred to as uh, beatitudes. You might read that somewhere sometime, but beatitudes simply means blessings. They were common pronouncements in ancient times of blessing and well-being upon an individual, particularly in connection to the divine realm. These brief sayings present a radical worldview and permit us to get into the mind of Jesus. This is how Jesus saw life and how he wants his followers to see their world. This is reality, says Jesus to his followers. Here is the program. And we've got to buckle our seats, 
because Jesus turns the world as we know it right on its head. If there is any doubt that Christ's kingdom was not of this world, his statements in a section such as this put that to rest. The sermon starts with four Beatitudes, which Barclay refers to as a series of bombshells. Quoting Deisman describes them as flashes of lightning followed by a thunder of surprise and amazement. These are profound statements. Teaching which gets at the very heart of the Old Testament text of divine revelation. Teaching which gets at the very heart of God and draws us as his people to consider these profound truths. First, four blessings. We start in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed. This speaks of a joyful state of the privileged recipient of divine favor. In God's eyes, the blessed are the poor. Now, is Jesus saying that an empty bank account qualifies one for the kingdom of God? Obviously, that's not the case. There are poor people who vehemently reject Jesus Christ, and there are rich people who respond to Christ, even in, within this book, in the context of his life. We can think of Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea and others who had wealth who responded to Christ. The idea here, we need to understand contextually the Old Testament context and understand that the poor were seen as both a socioeconomic category, but a category that merged with a spiritual reality. In the Old Testament, the poor are viewed in general terms as the downtrodden, those who are humbled by their circumstances and who cling to God in hope because they have nowhere else to turn. Outwardly, they are economically challenged. But at a deeper level, they are those kind of people who hope in God. They reach out for Him. And I've spent time walking through wealthy neighborhoods talking to people about Christ. And I've spent more time walking through impoverished neighborhoods, speaking to people about Christ. It is very clear to see which one clings to God. Now, neither is any more saved than the other. But those who have nothing reach to God in a way that those who have full lives really don't understand without the enlightenment of God. And so I think drawing from that Old Testament context, Jesus is speaking here of the poor, not only the spiritually poor, but also not only the economically poor. There's a certain type of mindset that clings to God and needs Him. That's the people he's referring to here. He may be drawing from Isaiah 61, which Philip read earlier here for us, where the poor are those Jews exiled in Babylon who refuse to compromise their faith with their captors and enjoy the wealth of Babylon. Matthew removes any ambiguity for us by recording Jesus saying here, as blessed are the poor in spirit. That is Jesus' point. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Notice that it says here, blessed are those, for yours is the kingdom of God. Even in the midst of their suffering, the kingdom is theirs. Obviously, the kingdom of God was not yet established in its fullest sense. Jesus was not reigning from a throne in Jerusalem. But in another real sense, the kingdom was already in their possession. The poor are God's kind of people. 
Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That is what Jesus is doing. This messianic prophecy that he would preach good news to the poor is being fulfilled in Christ as he speaks. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're my kind of people. You will inherit the kingdom. Second blessing, blessed are those who hunger, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. The hunger here may be physical again, but a spiritual idea is behind it all and is mixed with it. Matthew makes this more explicit again when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In point of fact, these people may hunger physically, but they have a deeper hunger, a hunger for God and for righteousness. There is to be that hunger in our lives, and Jesus calls us to it. Do you long for justice to rule this earth? Do you long for the reign of righteousness? Do you want the good to prevail and God to satisfy your soul? Is there a hunger there for spiritual realities to bear in this world? If so, for you there is good news. God sees that longing and He will fill it. Number three, blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. For those who see the world as God sees it, for those who are grieved with sin and who suffer its consequences through no fault of their own, Jesus promises a grand reversal. Those who weep at social injustice, abortion, starving people, victims of torture and abuse, those who weep at a world at war and racism and disease and death, those who grieve over such horrors will someday laugh. Those who suffer bitter loss and those who weep today because of horrors too evil to mention are going to laugh someday if they're God's people. There's a day of joy pending for his people when they will bid farewell to every tear and wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love to laugh. I hope that you love to laugh. We should. But isn't it true, wouldn't you agree with me, every season of laughter is tempered eventually by the realization that there are people in this assembly who grieve. Every season of laughter eventually is quelled by the realization that I have brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ throughout this world who are being tortured for Jesus. We should laugh. We should find humor in this world. But it's a laughter that is always tempered by the realities of sin. But I thank God through the word of Jesus Christ for this promise. There's a day when we will laugh. We will laugh and the laughter will never be tempered by the sorrow. A day when, as the prophet said, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. There's a day when all the weeping will be over. Weep now because laughter comes in the morning. Blessed, number four, are the persecuted. Verse 22, we have to really hold on here because speaking of a bombshell, 
Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Blessed are the persecuted. I think there's a direct connection here between this beatitude and those that precede which indicate that this is how we are to understand those who are poor and those who are hungry and those who weep. They are the same people as those who are persecuted. That's what much of the poverty and weeping and hunger is all about. There's something that's twisted and wrong in this world as they see it. And in fact, there are others who stamp on them and oppress them and hate them and exclude them and reject them. We notice that the suffering here, of course, is not owing to some personality flaw or some failure on, in their own experience. What is the reason for this suffering? Because it, it is because they, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 22, because of the Son of Man. In other words, because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, they, they are persecuted. Now the people to whom Jesus is speaking inhabit a very different culture than we do. In our day, people meet their neighbors and never bother to ask if they go to church. It makes really little difference to most people what your religious thoughts are because we view religion in this culture as a very private matter. That's not true of the people that Jesus is speaking to. Your religious belief would be a way in which everyone would view you. And if you were not on the right page, they would let you know about it. In that day, one's religion was a vital aspect of who you were, and you were treated accordingly. So following Jesus Christ, you had to be prepared to become a social outcast. You had to be prepared even for physical persecution. That context misses us a bit, but what cannot miss us well, let me stop and say that context does not miss all of God's people, of course, and we need to be very aware of our brothers and sisters in Christ today who are suffering physical persecution for their <coughs> Christianity. But that is not so much our ongoing common experience. Perhaps many times it ought to be more our experience if we would truly stand for Christ and hold true to his teachings. But what we must grab here is the response to persecution that Jesus encourages. When you are hated, excluded, rejected, how do you typically respond? Jesus says in that day his followers are to rejoice. In fact, he doesn't hold anything back and says they are to leap for joy. Now, why is that? What does the text say? Rejoice in that day, verse 23. Leap for joy because... Here is reason number one. Number one, because great is your reward in heaven. The point is that you, receive, you will receive final vindication. You can rejoice because God sees what is taking place and there's a day coming when all things will be made right. You can rejoice. We, we need to think of this. Can you imagine if for one moment we went to heaven? 
for one moment, we saw the realities that, bear, that come to bear there in, in eternity. If we could see that reality for one brief moment and then would come back to earth and be imprisoned and beaten and our name dragged through the mud, we would jump up and down for joy in our prison cell because of what was coming. Not because because of what was here, not because we rejoice at pain, but because of the reward that is to come as God vindicates those who suffer wrongly. There's a second reason for such rejoicing, and that is the great, that great is, is the company on earth with whom we identify as we suffer. Not only is there a coming vindication, but there is, now, there is the right company here on earth. It says that for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. What's he saying there? When you suffer for righteousness, you are identified with the prophets who suffered for righteousness. When you're mistreated, for my name's sake, you identify with their ordeal. To suffer persecution is to join an elite and noble fraternity. So if that day ever comes for you, rejoice. Leap for joy. Great is your reward in heaven. Great is your company on earth. Morris summarizes it this way. Jesus promises his followers that they would be absurdly happy but also that they would never be out of trouble. Well, over against these four blessings, Jesus stands up four woes which serve to warn any of his audience who are not genuine. There is a broad number of disciples here. They've come throughout Palestine. There are the twelve that he's chosen, but there are also others, and some of them may be on the edge. And this comes as a warning to those who are not sure about following Christ or who are false believers, false disciples. He issues here four woes. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. And the woes follow there through verse 26. A woe is an anguished expression of pending divine judgment which awaits a person. Woe to the rich, verse 24. Again, the status of one's pocketbook is not the issue. The issue is the heart. The Old Testament routinely uses the imagery of wealth to picture the self-reliant, the comfortable, those who are distant from God. If you want things more than you want God, if you find your joy in wealth, you have all you're going to get. You've received your reward. Woe to the rich. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Second woe, verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. If the things of this life satisfy your soul, you are on the fast track to eternal emptiness, Jesus says. One commentator says, The joy of possession now will become the pain of what is lost forever. Verse 25b, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Again, there's nothing evil about laughter as such. The idea here is probably that of meaningless, pointless, or even sinful merriment. As one puts it, what Jesus assaulted is the superficial, shallow mirth that characterizes the world. The inability to weep at the right things and the ability to laugh at the wrong things. Hughes puts that well. The inability to weep 
at the right things and the ability to laugh at the wrong things. Am I wrong? Isn't that just what most of television is right there? Laughing at what we should weep at? There is a drastic end in view for such people who laugh now but will mourn later. Verse 26, Woe to the popular. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. You see the contrast there with verse 22. If you are persecuted, if you are misused and mistreated, you identify with the noble lot of the prophets. But if everyone speaks well of you, guess what? You don't identify with that lot. This is a woe pronounced against those who incur no such wrath from a fallen world. And there's a principle here for us very clearly. Universal praise puts you in very bad company. When everyone speaks well of you, and everyone likes you for what you believe and think and for how accommodating you are to every opinion that blows with the wind. You're in bad company, says Jesus. There's no room in Jesus' mind for a popular disciple. We need to balance that, of course. He's not talking about personality. He's not talking about being obnoxious and turning people off. He is not throwing out the biblical texts which say that as we honor wisdom, it will be beautiful in the eyes of others. All of that we need to keep here. But let's hear the hard words of Jesus as he says in John 15, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All of us as adults need to come to terms with this statement of Jesus. Those of you who are younger and growing up, and particularly those who are interacting with an ungodly world on a daily basis, perhaps in school or in your neighborhood, it's okay when people don't like you. It's all right when you feel like you're on the outside and you just can't laugh at the same things and you can't do all of the same things and you're somewhat distant from the inner core and the popular group. That's all right. Just remember, when Jesus is your God, the story's not done until it's done. We should be distinctive and different. And let me move to that as we consider these four blessings and four woes which serve to set the tone for the remainder of this sermon, not my sermon, but Jesus' sermon. The remainder of that sermon in these woes and blessings are the basis for what is to come in the text that follows through verse 49 in the end of the chapter. What would you say as we enter into this sermon, into this seminar, as Jesus leads it for his people? What would you say? Does this first movement of the sermon ease into things gradually? These sayings detonate on impact, don't they? Blessed are the poor! 
those who are hungry, those who weep, those who are persecuted, jump up and down when people are against you. He doesn't ease into it. I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton's observation that upon the first reading of this sermon, you think everything is upside down. Upon the second reading, you realize that everything is right side up. Then again, he said on the first reading, it all seems positively impossible, but on the second reading, it proves to be the only way to live. Indeed it is. It is the worldview, the mindset, the values of our Creator and Savior. What we have read here and what comes in the remainder of the sermon. In light of these blessings and woes, we need to ask then whether or not we really see the world as Jesus sees it and as He would have us see it. What have we considered here? A word on happiness. Let's consider that for a moment. Happiness. We've just finished a holiday season in which our culture coaches us at every turn to seek happiness in things. It coaches us to be happy as the rich. We're instructed to seek happiness in a way that God says will lead to sorrow. Our world exalts riches, it exalts provision, it exalts entertainment, entertainment and hilarity, it exalts popularity. And Jesus tells us right here that they all lead to destruction. Who are the people in the media? Who are the people that are interviewed? Who are the people that are exalted and honored and pre pressed forward? They're the people of influence. They're the people everyone speaks well of, or most people speak well of. They're the exalted, the wealthy, the rich, the connected, the popular. Jesus pronounces a woe on them. And so we need to ask as his followers, in whose way are we going to seek happiness? The world's way or Christ's way? I know that's not a popular message. I know that it's not a popular message even among many Christian churches. But we have to come to terms with that very point. We're either going to seek happiness God's way or the world's way. We're not going to seek it both ways. Test your soul this morning. Does your soul hunger for God? Is there a sorrowful longing for a world free of the filth of sin? Do you come before God with hands clutching onto the things of this life, or do you come empty-handed and anxious to find your happiness in God alone? I can't find a more apt illustration than R. Kent Hughes' recounting of Kierkegaard's apt discussion along these lines. He pictured a wild duck who was flying northward across Europe in the springtime. And as this duck flew, he saw some domesticated ducks in a barnyard and said, that looks kind of interesting. And he landed in the barnyard and found that the fare was pretty good. They were eating very well there in the barnyard and he took up residence that summer with the ducks in the barnyard. As it grew cold, his flock flew over him heading south for the winter, and they were quacking and calling him back to join them, and something welled up within this duck, and he mounted up on wings 
that had become very dull, and he began to flap, and he couldn't get any higher than the eaves of the barn. He wanted to go with his flock. He wanted to return, but couldn't make it. He'd become fat. And so he landed back down in the barnyard and made the best of the winter. Spring came and the flock came back over the barnyard and called out again to him to join them to return to the sky. This time he thought about it, but didn't even try. And when they came back to flying south in the winter again, they called and they called and they called to this duck, and he never even heard them. What a picture that can become of us in this world, glutted with ease, happy in wealth, and losing the sense of freedom in Jesus Christ. Are you so glutted with the things of this world that the call of heaven is too faint to hear? A word on happiness. Where will you find it? Secondly, a word on humility. God blesses those who come to him in need. It matters not your socioeconomic status. Although, of course, if you're wealthy, you need to be very cautious. And we are wealthy as a culture. We need to be very cautious because that can dull our sensitivities to God and dull our sense of need before Him. What God desires is humble seekers, people who come just as they are and reach out to Him in their poverty and hunger and their sorrow and their ostracism and say, I want God. I need Him. We need to come humbly. A word on holiness is also proclaimed here in the text. If you propose to follow Jesus, you must be willing to be different than the world around you. And you will need to be willing to get hit. There is no need for a martyr's complex and there's no room for self-pity. But the truth is, if you follow Jesus, not everyone is going to like it. In fact, most will not. Barclay puts it this way, if you take the world's way, you must abandon the values of Christ. If you take Christ's way, you must abandon the values of the world. And then a word on hope. Everything in this sermon hinges on hope and what we might call the great reversal. Jesus calls us not to abandon our passions for joy and pleasure, but he implores us to focus those passions at a future target. That does not mean there's no joy and there's no pleasure in the things of this earth. As Paul said to Timothy, he's given us all things to enjoy. But our ultimate happiness, our ultimate joy is to be future-oriented. For the follower of Christ, the riches and satisfaction, the laughter and acceptance are not realized in their fullest sense here and now, but in eternity. We must never, ever forget that. Blessed are you who are poor and who are hungry and who weep and who are persecuted because great is your reward in heaven. We've got to learn to wait for the great reversal. We are to adopt this radical future orientation and not be set in the moment. I don't know if any culture has ever survived on the face of this earth that is more now-centered than this culture in which we live. We need to fight it by being radically different.
The future orientation anticipates the coming great reversal when God judges the universe, a day when those who suffer deprivation, those who hunger and weep and suffer injustice will be vindicated and put at ease. They will be enriched and they will be satisfied. They will laugh and they will enter the eternal fraternity of the redeemed. The teachings of Jesus and this sermon in particular hinges on this great reversal when suffering and defeat will be swallowed up in victory and in joy. If we think like Jesus, if we value what He values, if we see our world as He saw it, we will filter everything through this grid of future hope. And we will live. How does, is it put in the book of Hebrews? We will live by faith. We will live with a future prospect to the day when every tear will be dry. To the day when we who hunger for righteousness and for God will be filled to overflowing. To that day when every wrong that has been suffered will be vindicated as it was suffered for the glory of God. Is that how you see your world? Or are we stuck in the mud and the muck of this barnyard? Let's lift our eyes to the glories of heaven and let's live with an ethic that is radically different from a now-centered culture so that it will be clear here that we are the people of God and so that it will be clear in eternity that we are the people of God. Let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer as we consider that point. Our Father... I pray that we would be, in fact, your people, that we would be Jesus' people, those who think like he thought, those who shared his worldview, those who are radically distinct from the world about us. And I pray, God, I must, that we not in that difference become isolated, become so removed from our world that we fail to touch it, but I pray that we would take that radical mindset and influence our world for righteousness. Knowing that as we get hit by the current that is flowing the other direction, that God will someday vindicate and reward and will now and in eternity bless. We thank you for these blessings and we thank you that he has in fact, that Jesus has turned the world upside down in his teaching. We're thankful because we inhabit a world that we know is twisted and fallen and chaotic and desperately in need of change. God, I pray that you will change each of us and that we will consider carefully what the Spirit is saying to your church here this morning. Please do a work in our hearts as we respond in song and in prayer. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing 700.